bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need the legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, September 28, 2010. Today is the 149th Tax Credit Tuesday podcast. As always, the podcast is brought to you by Novogratik & Company, LLP. Each week in the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast, I discuss news and information of interest to the tax credit community, specifically about the low-income housing tax credit, new markets tax credits, historic tax credits, and renewable energy tax credits. This week, I'll bring you an update on the possible effect of the new Basel III regulations on tax credit investing. I will also discuss a report from the Government Accountability Office regarding the Recovery Act's low-income housing tax credit programs, as well as a proposal to implement a low-income housing tax credit program in Canada. This week, we also have lots of new market tax credit information, including a summary of new market tax credit investment data through 2009, new legislation regarding an AMT offset for new market tax credits, and another job opening at the CDFI fund. This week's historic tax credit discussion will focus on an update of the situation in Missouri, where the state's historic tax credit is facing increased scrutiny, along with approximately 60 other state tax credits. Finally, turning to renewable energy, I'll discuss the pace at which the Department of Energy expects to disperse Recovery Act funds in the coming months, a prediction about the pace of wind turbine installations in 2011, and a review of recently introduced energy legislation. If you're ready, let's get started. We start off with some general tax credit news. Novogratz & Company has continued to investigate the possible effects of the newly released proposed Basel III rules and the impact they'll have on tax credit investing. Although the full extent of the impact of the proposed rules remains unclear, there is a chance that it could reduce tax credit demand for some institutions in the future. Bob Spankler, RBC Capital Markets Managing Director and Head of their Tax Equity Group, said he can see at least three possible repercussions of Basel III on tax credit investing. First, because deferred tax assets would no longer be Tier 1 capital, a rolling a credit forward is going to be more expensive. This has the potential to limit the marketplace and result in diminished tax credit appetites for institutions that can't use the tax credits immediately. Second, a recent RBC report projects that the cost of a letter of credit, including letter of credit renewals, will increase by as much as 100 basis points, and this could affect the cost of liquidity on 4% tax credit debt. Third, because banks are now required to hold a higher percentage of their overall asset base and lower-yielding, lower-risk, and highly liquid assets, they'll likely need an even greater return on their higher-yielding or higher-return investments. Spangler predicts that this will cause borrowing costs in general to rise, but particularly the cost of real estate and corporate lending. On the other hand, Wells Fargo Bank's Senior Vice President of Community Lending and Investment, Bob Taylor, said the bank's capital levels are already up to the standards set by Basel III. The bank, as a consequence, won't have to take drastic actions, such as curbing lending, because of the reasonable amount of capital required in a lengthy implementation period. Mr. Taylor doesn't expect Basel III's requirements to impede Wells Fargo's investments in long-term tax credits or new market tax credits. He said that the bank is on track to meet its $800 million LIHTC investment target for this year, and Wells Fargo plans to increase that amount by 15% next year. 
Now let's move on to low-income housing tax credit news. The Government Accountability Office, the GAO, last week issued the latest in a series of reports on the uses of and the accountability for Recovery Act funds. As of September 3rd, about $155 billion of the approximately $282 billion of total funds made available by the Recovery Act in 2009 had been paid out by the federal government. Of that amount, more than 65%, or about $102 billion, had been paid out since September 30, 2009, which would be the start of the federal fiscal year for 2010. As of July 31st, HUD had outlaid about $733 million of TCAP funds, which is about a third of the total amount allotted. Treasury had also outlaid about $1.4 billion, or about one quarter, of the estimated Section 1602 program funds. The Government Accountability Office's review, in addition to providing an update on the expenditure of Recovery Act funds, also identified two areas of concern. One concern relates to HUD's identification of higher-risk TCAP projects, and the other relates to challenges that some project owners may face in meeting a December 2010 deadline for spending funds in the Section 1602 program. Regarding the first concern, the report notes that under TCAP, HFAs, housing finance agencies, have increased responsibilities for asset management and monitoring compliance of project owners with the terms and conditions of the 1602 program, or I should say of the TCAP program. However, the GAO says that some projects with a nominal amount of tax credits may lack the benefit of oversight that's provided by third-party investors. The report says that HUD has not identified the projects that lack this additional level of oversight, and thus, these projects are at higher risk of non-compliance with TCAP and LIHTC requirements. Although HUD relies in part on HFAs to provide oversight, GAO says that HUD does not know the extent to which the FHAs will provide additional oversight for projects that lack third-party investors. HUD is relying on existing monitoring systems and resources, but has not fully identified those projects that may be subject to review under its existing system or developed additional guidance or or oversight of TCAP projects where there is little or no third-party oversight. In this report, GAO recommends that HUD take a more active role in monitoring TCAP projects. First, by identifying those projects that may present a higher risk of noncompliance, and second, by identifying those projects that also have home funds. The idea being that if they have home funds, there's some type of home funds review that would cause those projects to be less at risk. GAO also notes that HUD could more effectively use limited oversight resources by using a risk-based approach that considers whether a TCAP project has third-party investors and whether HFAs are providing enhanced oversight. GAO provided a draft of its report to HUD, and HUD responded, by saying it will identify projects that are not funded by home funds and projects that have a nominal tax credit award. These projects are considered at a higher risk of noncompliance because they have no third-party investor reviews, because they have limited amount of tax credits or the tax credits weren't sold to investors, and because they have no home fund lender reviews. HUD is expected to make these identifications after projects are complete and develop a monitoring plan tailored to these projects. Now, switching to the Section 1602 program, as most listeners are aware, Treasury's regulations require project owners to spend 30% of eligible project costs by December 31, 2010. They must spend this money by that date in order to continue to receive additional Section 1602 program funds in 2011. During the course of the GAO's research, some of the FHAs and project owners expressed concerns about meeting the 30% requirement 
because of unexpected delays stemming from the need to assemble funding, as well as litigation, construction, and permitting issues. So for instance, as of June 30th, 2010, nearly 40% of the Section 1602 projects that the GO reviewed had yet to close, thereby leaving little time to meet the spending deadline. Projects that do not meet the deadline would not be eligible to receive any additional Section 1602 program funds. Program participants note that in response, other sources of funding might withdraw from the projects and project owners would face difficulty finding replacement financing. Thus, the report warns that the 30% spending requirement might stop projects already underway, a warning that the GAO describes as an, quote, unintended irony for a program designed to jumpstart stalled projects. Should there be a significant number of such projects, the report says that Treasury will be challenged to find ways to ensure that the program achieves its intended goals. Specifically, although Treasury has been developing guidance for how HFAs should monitor project spending, it has yet to develop contingency plans in the event that significant numbers of projects stall again. GAO recommends that Treasury should expeditiously provide HFAs with guidance on monitoring project spending and develop plans for dealing with the possibility that projects could miss the spending deadline and face further project interruptions. In response to a draft of GAO's report, Treasury says that it has taken a number of steps to ensure HFAs and project owners have a complete understanding of the 30% deadline and are prepared to comply with that requirement. In addition, Treasury said it plans to continue monitoring the impact of the 30% spending deadline on the program and to provide additional guidance necessary to address unforeseen or unexpected circumstances. The report stresses that Treasury's development of timely guidance may be particularly important because the December 31 deadline for spending 30% of program funding is quickly approaching. Now, heading north, north of the 49th parallel, we have LIHTC news from Canada. A policy paper released last week by the University of Calgary School of Public Policy suggested that Canada implement a low-income housing tax credit modeled on the United States LIHTC program. The paper's authors, Marion Steele and Peter Tomlinson, suggest that a Canadian low-income housing tax credit could stem the tide of condo conversions and make it more financially viable for developers to construct new multifamily rental units. Supporters of the proposal believe that tax credits are a small government investment that could yield dramatic results because they offer a financial incentive for, for private businesses to get involved in helping address the need for affordable housing. Steele estimates that the tax credit program could fund between 3,500 and 5,000 rental units nationwide and would divert $50 million in tax revenues from federal coffers in its first year, $100 million in the second year, and $150 million in its third year. The paper suggests that a low-income housing tax credit program best balances effectiveness with the need to minimize costs on strained government budgets. For example, by focusing on tax credits, the plan makes use of existing government departments, which would cut down on administrative costs. And after establishing a minimum set of conditions for the operation of the program, the role of the federal government essentially would be limited to dealing with noncompliance, a function that the authors believe the Canada Revenue Agency would handle efficiently. The authors also suggest that another advantage of a Canadian local housing tax credit is that its foregone tax revenue is set. The paper says that a major attraction for cash-strapped provincial governments is the absence of any requirement that they provide matching funds. And according to the authors, perhaps the most potent advantage of a local housing tax credit 
is that its efficiency and effectiveness would rely on the competitive allocation of funds and on efforts by the private sector to minimize costs. They accurately note that in the United States, those involved in the local housing tax credit program believe the pressures exerted by private investors and their oversight have been highly valuable. Now, the Calgary Herald reported last week that Finance Canada, which develops policies and provides advice to the government on topics including tax policy, would not comment on the feasibility of this proposal. But the paper also reported that an official with Alberta Housing and Urban Affairs said the department would definitely review the policy paper. Novogratz and Company will track this proposal and will report on any progress in future podcasts. Well, let's go back to the U.S. and discuss new market tax credit news. The CDFI fund requires all community development entities, CDEs, that receive new market tax credits that they provide an annual report that details how they invest qualified equity investment or QEI proceeds in low-income communities. Last week, the CDFI fund released a summary report of this information. Through the 2009 reporting period, CDEs dispersed a total of nearly $16 billion in QEI proceeds. That money went to nearly 3,000 qualified active low-income community businesses. Now, the CDFI fund did provide some summary of the data. And they noted that 82% of the transactions were in metropolitan areas, with the balance, or 18%, in non-metropolitan areas. By dollar value, about 90% was in metro areas and about 10% in non-metro. Now, nearly half of the qualified active loan community businesses, or colicbees, were real estate colicbees, with just over half being non-real estate colicbees. By dollar volume, however, 63% were real estate and 35% were non-real estate collectbees, with about 2% going to other CDEs. A summary report listing all the qualified businesses financed by CDEs through fiscal year 2009 can be found online at www.newmarketscredits.com. We've also posted a link to a map released by the CDFI fund that shows the qualified businesses financed by CDEs through fiscal year 2009. I also invite you to join Novogratz and Company professionals and other new market tax credit experts in Chicago next month for the New Market Tax Credit Investors Conference. There will be opportunities there to learn more about recent trends in new market tax credit investing, as well as numerous networking opportunities for those listeners looking to do deals or find allocation. Right now, we have nearly 350 professionals registered for the conference and we're getting additional registrations every day. Now back to the legislation front, or what might be referred to as old wine in a new bottle, Congressman Elsie Hastings introduced a bill that would allow new market tax credit investments made after March 15, 2010 and before January 1, 2012 to offset the alternative minimum tax. The bill, H.R. 6181, is entitled the American Infrastructure Investment Act and it would also extend the Recovery Zone Bond Program through 2011 and the Build America Bond Program through 2012. The bill is also co-sponsored by Representatives Ron Klein of Florida and Theodore Deutsch of Florida as well, and it has been referred to the House Committee on Ways and Means. You can read the text of H.R. 6181 on the legislation page of the New Market Tax Credit Resource Center website. And then in closing on the New Market Tax Credit area, we want to also alert our readers that the City of Fife Fund last week announced that it has, jo- it has a job opening for a New Market Tax Credit Program financial analyst. 
Among other things, this analyst reviews and recommends the approval or disapproval of applications for tax credits. The person in this role also provides outreach, advice, and technical assistance to actual and potential awardees, as well as to industry representatives and other stakeholders. The position closes on October 15, 2010, so if you know of anyone who might be interested, please direct them to www.usajobs.gov before October 15, 2010. Once again, if you know someone interested in this position, send them to www.usajobs.gov and they can search for job posting by the CDFI fund. Moving on to historic tax credit news, we have an update on the Missouri Tax Credit Review Commission. As listeners may recall from previous podcasts, Missouri Governor Jay Nixon created a Tax Credit Review Commission earlier this year to examine the state's 61 tax credit programs. The group of 25 business community and legislative leaders is expected to make recommendations to achieve greater efficacy and generate enhanced returns on investment from Missouri state tax credits. The commission has until Thanksgiving to present Governor Nixon with its findings and recommendations. Chuck Gross, St. Charles County Director of Administration and also the co-chair of the Tax Credit Review Commission, told Novogratz and Company that his goal is to have his findings and recommendations on Governor Nixon's desk by November 1st. He said that the report may even include suggested legislative language. This month, the Commission held regional meetings to gather input on evaluation methods for the various programs. Governor Nixon and representatives of the Missouri Department of Economic Development briefed the full Commission at the September 8th kickoff meeting. At the time of this recording, the Commission had held six meetings to discuss the programs, and five of those meetings included public testimony. The Missouri Coalition for Historic Preservation and Economic Development has expressed concern with the Commission's member composition. Specifically, the Coalition says that the historic tax credit community was underrepresented in the Commission. However, Mr. Gross has pointed out that some of the state's largest tax credit investors, including a representative from U.S. Bank Corp. Community Development Corporation, are serving on the Commission. In addition, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch reported last week that a great deal of the public testimony being presented was in support of the state's historic tax credit. In an interview with Novogratz and Company, Mr. Gross said that the biggest question for the Commission will be to decide how to determine each tax credit's value. Finding tools to quantify and compare the state's various tax credit programs has been one of the Commission's biggest challenges. Tax credits with benefits that can be measured directly such as number of jobs created, can be quantified using modeling software like Regional Economics Models, Inc., REMI, or Impact Analysis for Planning, or MPLAN. Novogratz and Company has extensive experience with these models. However, the benefits of non-job producing programs are proving more difficult to quantify. An example of this kind of program is the contribution tax credit that's given for charitable donations to not-for-profits. At this time, the Commission has not selected which evaluation methods it would use to carry out its review. The Commission's progress and plan for the coming weeks is going to be described in more detail in an upcoming article in the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits. If you're not a subscriber, you can subscribe to the journal online at www.novoco.com products or send an email to cpas at novoco.com. In Renewable Energy Tax Credit News, the Department of Energy is about set to disperse $1 billion in Recovery Act funds 
per month. This according to a report from PowerGen Worldwide. In addition, the Department of Energy is about to begin speeding up loan guarantees approvals across all projects. Matt Rogers, the Department's Chief of Economic Stimulus Spending, did tell attendees at the Platts Energy Podium event on September 23rd that the Department of Energy will continue to outlay $800 million to $1 billion every month for the next 18 months. Rogers said that so far, the Department of Energy has spent $7.3 billion of its Recovery Act funds, but only $1 billion has yet to be obligated to specific projects. He also told the group that the Loan Guarantee Program is set to accelerate and three or four awards of these funds could be issued each month. Now, I'd like to remind listeners that a detailed description and analysis of the Recovery Act's Renewable Energy Programs is included in the 2010 Renewable Energy Tax Credit Handbook. To learn more about this newest addition to the Novograd & Company line of tax credit resource guides, send an email to products at novaco.com. Switching to wind energy news, after years of strong growth, the U.S. wind energy market is bracing itself for a precipitous drop in annual turbine installations. This according to MAKE Consulting, an independent advisory firm focused on the international wind energy industry. The consulting group announced last week that it is downgrading its 2010 to 2015 forecast by 23%. It said the downgrade is a reflection of adverse macroeconomic conditions and an unfavorable government policy environment. In a statement released last week, the group said that the slow recovery of the U.S. economy, coupled with the continued weakness in natural gas prices, has provided a headwind for U.S. wind turbine sales. In addition, the group predicted that efforts on the part of the Governor's Wind Energy Coalition to revive federal renewable electricity standard legislation are unlikely to yield policy measures that drive wind adoption in excess of existing state renewable portfolio standard mandates. Now, before we wrap up the renewable energy section of today's podcast, I would like to quickly review some of the most recent legislation introduced in Congress. The biggest headline on the legislation front relates to the proposed Renewable Electricity Standard, RES. Last week, Senator Jeff Bingaman, Chairman of the Senate Energy Committee, and Senator Tom Udall introduced legislation that would require utilities to obtain 15% of their energy from renewables by the year 2021. Similar legislation was adopted by the committee in 2009 as part of a larger bill, but the full Senate never acted on it. The House of Representatives also passed an RES in 2009. It's not expected that lawmakers will act on any of these bills before they recess later this week, but we continue to monitor all relevant legislation. Other energy measures introduced recently include H.R. 6117, called the Clean Renewable Energy Investment Act of 2010. This bill would repeal the limitation on the issuance of new clean renewable energy bonds. Upon introduction, it was referred to the Ways and Means Committee in the House. Another bill of note is H.R. 6121, the Renewable Energy Investment Incentive Act of 2010. H.R. 6121 would extend the production tax credit and investment tax credit. It would also increase the investment tax credit with respect to equipment used to generate electricity by geothermal power, as well as extend specified energy property grants under the Recovery Act. Upon introduction, it was also referred to the Ways and Means Committee in the House, as well as the Energy and Commerce Committee. Copies of these measures can be found online 
at www.energytaxcredits.com. If you'd like to discuss the latest developments in Congress and what they mean for the renewable energy community, I invite you to join Novogratz and Company at the Financing Renewable Energy Conference November 10th and 11th in Washington, D.C. Details about the event are online at www.novocode.com events. This conference is also being held after the November elections, so we'll have some insights into what the results of those elections, whatever they may be, are likely to have in the, in the renewable energy community. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Please join me again next week, which is going to be a milestone for us here with Tax Credit Tuesday. It's going to be our 150th Tax Credit Tuesday podcast. And as always, I invite feedback on the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast. Please share your suggestions for improvement or ideas for topics that you'd like to hear discussed. You can send an email to cpas at novoco.com or directly to me, michael.novogradic at novoco.com. This is Michael Novogradic, and I'll be back next Tuesday. Thanks for listening.